0: Hello. We've been, uh, since Easter, we've actually, we've been in this series called Resurrected Lives, in which we are looking at how important stuff in our lives uh, looks different in light of Jesus' resurrection. So today we're going to be thinking about a very important topic, parenting. Jesus has opened the way for us into new life. Where does parenting fit into that life? So I've, uh, I've got some bad news for you. I, uh, I took this assignment because I have, I've been working on a few uh, dad jokes. And so I gathered you here today as a kind of like a focus group. So just as it comes up naturally at different points as it arises, I'm going to insert some dad jokes. You just... React however you would normally react. And uh, I'm just going to gather some data on on whether these are funny or not. So uh, here's one to just kind of get you warmed up. Why do spicy peppers make for bad neighbors? Because they get jalapeno business. We're going to call that a three. It's just good to get a, get a baseline reading. It is harder to pay, be a parent now than ever. It, I mean, it's always been hard. But these days, many of us have this kind of cultural sense that whether you parent and how you parent has implications for everything, the whole of society and the future of humanity. And there's important things that we could talk about there. But let's just say for now, that's a lot. That's a lot of stress. It's hard to parent when every day feels like it is full of a hundred coin flip decisions that could decide the fate of the world. And that's before we even get to the fact of like a a living, breathing kid who is right there and has their own opinions about what the future should look like. Even if those opinions are like, wouldn't it be awesome if we brought back dinosaurs or something like that? And it's tempting to think, yeah, yeah, that's just what you sign up for when you become a parent. Parenting isn't supposed to be easy. It's an exercise in self-sacrifice. You give yourself away for the sake of your kids. If you get into parenting expecting to get something out of it, you're doing it wrong. You'll be disappointed. Your kids are going to need a ton of therapy. It's just not for you, but you have a social and ethical obligation to do it anyways. Someone kept you alive and Fed you grilled cheese sandwiches and clipped your toenails, and now you have an obligation to pay it forward. It's time to tidy up the toenails of a new generation. But hey, all this talk about uh, childhood experiences reminds me of a joke. If you're shopping for a sled in Boston, what's the best way to get a good deal? You have to bargain. We'll get to another three and a half. We'll get through this together, folks. It'll be fine. We'll we'll make it. At some point on your journey with God, the Holy Spirit is probably going to say to you something like, Hey, you know, you don't have to make decisions entirely out of obligation. I have more freedom for you than that. And if parenting is nothing but obligation, then it's totally understandable that people would be like, wait. But am I actually like called to take up this burden? Is that what God wants for me? Great question. And I, I can't answer it for you. But let me at least say that I don't think parenting is all obligation. I believe God has a goodness and power for us in parenting. There is something God wants to give us that is for our sake, for you, the parent. That's where I want to, us to focus today. What I won't be doing is giving you like... A lot of practical tips on how to be a parent. I'm sorry about that. Sophia and I uh, don't have children of our own. We have had foster kids. We currently have a, a 17-month-old girl named Lila living with us. If, if Lila had a few more words, I'm sure she would be able to tell you that I don't know that much about parenting. So if you have questions like, I don't know, like, Patrick, what's the appropriate age to, to get a cell phone for your child? Uh, I like three months seems too young to me a phone is heavy like their their little thumbs are just not strong enough at that point But I know that I personally was ready to have a phone Probably at like age 35 So somewhere in there that kind of three month to 35 year window would be my recommendation This is the quality of parenting advice that I have to give you so if you are facing like a particular challenge There are lots of more experienced parents in this room seek out their wisdom but also, part of what makes them so wise is that many of them will be like, I- I'm still figuring it out. I-, I don't have all the answers. It just kind of depends on who your child is and how you can help them flourish. Like a lot of things, being a great parent is 90% listening, learning to listen to God, learning to listen to your child, learning to listen to trustworthy people around you. But hey, all this talk about experienced parents reminds me of a joke. What did the drummer call his twin daughters? And a one and a two. I'm going to make a note that it took a minute for you to get that one. We're going to give that a 1.5. I actually want to start today by talking about mothers which seems like it should be an easy place to start because it's kind of universal, right? We all have a mother. But as Josh was mentioning to us, as Josh was praying over us, if if you are listening to this congregation, you know it's not easy at all. We, We have people in this room who never knew their mothers, people who lost their mothers, people who have had to put up hard boundaries against their mothers, people who are actively seeking reconciliation with their mothers. We have experienced motherhood in many ways. We've had grandmas who were mothers. We've had aunties who were mothers. We've had adopted mothers who were mothers. We've had dads who were mothers. So no, there is nothing universal about any of this. And we will have to ask the Holy Spirit to say something that is for each of us in our own way. Nonetheless, I I want us to kind of center mothers for a minute. Let's make this about moms. And then we will try to find out what God has to say to the rest of us through the experience of moms. So let me pray for us, and uh, then we're going to read some scripture. Lord Jesus, help us listen to you. In your name we pray. So, we're going to read a strange passage of scripture together today. Uh, I I think we're having some technical difficulties. We may not be able to project it on the screen, but follow along if you would like to, uh, if you have a Bible or on your phone, or you can just listen as I'm going to read it for you. This is a passage from Revelation chapter 12. It's like a, it's an apocalyptic vision, or you might say it's a a kind of retelling or reinterpretation of Jesus' story in vivid, epic language. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 1, Revelation chapter 12. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to deliver a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a scepter of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. I'm going to skip down to verse 13. The dragon pursued the woman who had delivered the male child. But the, woman who was, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. So happy Mother's Day. I should, probably should have mentioned that earlier. One of the first questions you might have about this passage is, so, so who is this mother? Who is this woman? In general, there are, are two thoughts. Either this woman represents the whole people of God, or maybe this woman is more literally the Mary, the mother of Jesus. For our purposes, let's, let's say both. I don't want to get kind of too caught up in trying to figure out what all the symbolism of this this vision represents. Let's just try to step back and think about how this vision presents the arc of the Christian story. So it's easy to, to take for granted, but it's worth pointing out that when God came to us as a human, he decided that in order to be fully human, he would need a people, he would need a childhood, he would need to be mothered. For that reason, we use parental metaphors to describe the internal experience of being the triune God. We talk about son and father with a human woman, Mary, as a mother. So what are the, uh, what are the implications of all that? I, I'm just here to try out some dad jokes. Like these are too deep questions that are too deep for me, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Like why, why do you think God wanted to reveal himself through parenthood and not in some other way? But hey, all this talk about theological language reminds me of a joke. Oh, we're doing this. I bought a really bad thesaurus the other day. It wasn't just really bad. It was really bad. I'll give you a minute. Crossing that one out. The woman in this story was uh, pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. When I read that, immediately I think back to Genesis chapter 3, to the, the condition of life after the fall of Adam and Eve. And so when I read that the woman experiences pain in birth, that tells me that this story is happening in the present age. In our experience of a fallen creation. You know, uh, you know, you know why dad jokes are not that funny? The reason dad jokes are not that funny is because they're just not realistic. Like it's, it's always something like, you know, what did the sushi say to the bee? Wasabi. Don't laugh. No, I'm not, I, that's not, I already know that's not funny. I'm not even going to write that down. Why is it not funny? It's not funny because it's like, what are we doing here? The sushi is talking, there's like a, to an insect, it seems like really contrived. Dad jokes are not funny because they're not real enough. Mom jokes, on the other hand, are also not funny, but like because they get too real too quickly. A mom joke is like, what did the sushi say to the bee? is a question I would love to think about if I had like two seconds of quiet to myself. Could you please stop shouting? Like, okay, Mom. Hey, Mom, how do, you, how do you squeeze an elephant through a window? Boy, I was wondering that after I had been in labor with you for 23 hours trying to give you life. So maybe the question you should worry about is how you're going to squeeze yourself through ninth grade. It's like, ooh. Not that funny, mom. You can't blame moms in a way. Like, life in a fallen world is hard. What moms endure physically in pregnancy and birth and changes to your body and your hormones and your brain chemistry, all of that, and that's only a portion of the hardship in this present age. Being a parent is a grind. It is exhaustion, it is repetition, it is boredom, it is frustration, it is being always on, always planning, always getting off the couch and saying, what needs to be done now? It is making a million meals and washing the same sippy cup a million times and reading the same story about PJ Funny Bunny's journey to self-acceptance as a rabbit for like the one millionth time. It is driving for hours all over the state chasing travel soccer teams. It is reteaching yourself algebra to help your kid with homework. It is the mental grind of navigating a relationship with a teenager who is testing the limits of independence. And look, there are, there are some ways to redeem the grind. There may even be like an invitation here from the Lord to think about how we would structure society in such a way that parenting has, doesn't have to be as much of a grind as it is. What if there was more family leave, more childcare support? But even then, there will still be some amount of grinding. These like monks get all the, the credit for inventing this Latin phrase, this idea, ora et labora, the spiritual discipline of praying while working. But I would bet anything that there are far more moms than monks that have really mastered the spirituality of domestic life. There are moms who have sought God in their daily routines until they are truly saints. And I, I believe that's possible, but I, I'm also not sure that I fully understand it. I'm not sure I'm enough of a saint to really grasp that. So I'm spending all this time kind of talking about the birth pangs because I think the grind of parenting makes, makes many of us very anxious. But I want to use that, point, that fact to point to the bigger context. The real villain in this story is, is not the birth pangs, but the dragon. If anything, the birth pangs only exist because of the dragon, so let's not lose focus. The dragon introduces a new problem, which is not physical pain and exhaustion, but fear. The dragon tries first to consume the child, but, but fails. and The child is taken away to God's presence. The dragon now turns his wrath on the mother. Having failed to defeat Jesus, he is now determined to take revenge on the people Jesus loves. And this revenge then, in verse 15, takes the form of a flood pouring out of the dragon's mouth, which likely indicates a a flood of lies and deceit, all of which is intended to overwhelm her with doubt and fear. Motherhood is is such a uniquely vulnerable experience. It is the vulnerability that comes from loving someone so deeply that this love becomes you. It is wound up in your very fibers. It, in, it incorporates your whole self. And that love is so powerful and so precious. And if it feels vulnerable, it's because there's a dragon who wants to destroy it. Besides the grind of it, another component of motherhood that's, that's hard to talk about is the near constant low-key to high-key anxiety. Motherhood is a grind because it is also an emotional grind. It is having a voice constantly whispering in your ear, are you sure you're doing this right? Are, this sh- are you sure the ones that you love are okay? That, that voice is always creeping in, even if it doesn't feel like anxiety. I was went on a walk last summer with a, a dad in our community, and he was telling me about the experience of sending his son away to an overnight camp for the first time. And, and this, this dad is a busy guy, but he found himself throughout the day at work just kind of refreshing the camp website over and over again to see if they had posted any new pictures. He, he wasn't like worried exactly, but he just couldn't stop wondering about his son. He said to me, like, I just want one picture of my kids surrounded by some other kids and they're all smiling. Like, that's, that would be enough. Which, in a sense, is, is really sweet. We associate that level of concern with deep love. And this dad loves his son very much, very truly. And precisely for that reason, then, there is this very quiet voice in the back of his head, always saying, yeah. But what if your boy is lonely, or sad, or bullied? The dragon is, is always trying to drown us in fear. We say we are worried for our kids, which is true. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of the anxiety we feel for our kids is also about us. And that, that doesn't make us selfish. It's ultimately selfless to admit that the dragon tells lies that are tailored to us, that, that play on our brokenness, regardless of what's actually happening with our kids. Our children are, are in God's hands. The dragon pretends he can eat them, but, but God loves our children and God gets the final word. So if the dragon can't drown our loved ones, he will drown us with anxiety about them. We love our children so much that they become part of us, and so what happens to them also ends up feeling like a threat to us. The outcome of their life might also speak to the worth of our lives. Will I have done right? Will anyone remember me? Can anyone love me? Am I a good person? Am I safe? Does anything I do matter? These are very, very heavy questions that weigh on parents. Like core questions. Questions beneath the questions. And they affect what we worry about and how we parent. Even when we we worry about the health and safety of our children, it's helpful to acknowledge that alongside of that fear is fear for ourselves. We, We dare not even... Contemplate the loss of our children because there is a voice there saying, if something happens to them, you will be ruined. And there will be nothing left for you, just tears and chaos. It will be the end of your world. I think for for me and Sophia, the, the thing that is most unique about foster parenting is that you get to face these feelings like just on a much more compressed timeline. Lila is 17 months old. She's been with us since she was six months old. We love her very deeply. We couldn't imagine feeling any differently about our own child. And yet she will likely leave us at some point to return to her biological family. It could happen at at any time. We don't know. And so, of course, we worry about her, about how that will feel to her, about what will happen to her, about what her future will look like. But the truth is, fear encourages me to dwell on the worst possibilities, but it's also entirely possible that she will be fine. In fact, it's possible that she will be better off with her biological family. I can't rule that out. And so these terrible fears that I feel are not actually about her fate. They are about what will happen to me without her. Whether life will mean anything once she's gone. Whether I can find the strength to then love another child again. And so when she leaves us, it will be very painful. It will leave a hole, not just like in our daily lives, but in us. And that scares me. We can't possibly just go back to who we were before, go back to normal. She has fundamentally changed what is normal now. And so losing her will feel like a part of us is dying. And I, I know that because that's how it felt the first time a foster child left us. And yet, those feelings were were very real, but they also didn't totally correspond to the truth. It didn't destroy us, it didn't reduce our lives to chaos and ruin. On the other side of that loss, God was still alive, Jesus was still on the throne, and the dragon still had no hope of winning. Sophia and I were not the same, and we won't be the same, but we still won't belong to the dragon. And God will get to have the final word. So the fears that Sophia and I may have to face, even in a few weeks, are the same fears that every parent faces at some point, One day a a child moves out or moves away, leaves your sight, leaves your protection, faces the world, moves on to whatever God has next for them. And God can handle that. God can be sovereign over their lives. The real fear is, what will happen to me? The parent left behind. What will I become when this child I love so much isn't part of my life in, in the same way? At least that's the question that the dragon wants you to really dwell on. And again, this is not selfishness. This is real fear about the potential of real loss. And I'm just trying to name these deep fears honestly so that we can take them before God. So in that passage in in Revelation chapter 12, the the woman is given supernatural help in verses 13 and 14, wings to escape the dragon, places to rest. God knows us. He is always giving us ways to deal with fear, to avoid being overwhelmed, everything from prayer to self-care to friends to therapy. But those things are good in the context of loving in a way that causes us to fear. The power of parenthood is that it, it makes us love someone so much that it puts our very selves on the line. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, some of you know, Delahunt. I Delahunt, I was chatting to her a few weeks ago. She was telling me about seeing her grandson uh, again for the first time after a f- just a few weeks away and how she saw her grandson and like something moved in her. It was like, oh, I feel whole again. And she said, I always knew that that was true of my kids. I actually didn't realize that that was going to be true of my grandkids as well. God has something for us in that feeling, in in loving until it starts to feel risky. Until we're not sure how we will be changed by this person. And let me be very clear. I'm not saying that the risk is good. It's the love that is good. But in this fallen world, whenever we love, the dragon will want to convince us that we are taking a very dangerous risk. So hear me well, I'm not saying that if it feels risky, that means it's love. I'm saying that even when you love well, in a full and true and healthy way, it will feel risky. And if the power of parenthood is found in loving until we put ourselves on the line, there's a kind of good news there. Because at least in theory, any of us can do that, whether or not we are parents. I was in a a church once with a a woman named Dulcie. She was an immigrant from India. She was a professor of civil engineering, and she had never married or had children. And so from the outside, you might look at her life and be tempted to say that she had been more focused on her career than on her family. But the way that she loved the students that she mentored was extraordinary. She made a family out of fellow academics, fellow immigrants from all over the world. She treated them as her adult children in the sense that she cared about them so much that they became part of her story. Her heart was on the line. If things went badly for them, it would be heartbreaking for her. And if they, when things went well for them, she could not be more full of joy and satisfaction. And I don't know that I totally have the strength of faith yet to love some grad students that well. I apologize, grad students. <laughs> it took me a long time to work up the courage to become a foster dad, to, to choose to let someone deeply into my heart that I wasn't biologically related to. And the gift of parenting biological children is that it's, it's just like a cheat code. It's like a, it's a shortcut to some of this deep love. Whether or not you know what you're getting into, this baby is coming and your heart will be on the line. You will be deeply entwined with them in ways you can't quite predict. But anyone could choose to love anyone in a way that is so deep that it changes us. But it's not an easy thing to choose. The truth is that many of us, even in our most intimate relationships, put up some kind of barrier to make sure that our stuff remains untouched. We want to love, we want to commit, but we don't necessarily want to be changed. At ECV, we, we talk a lot about kind of the, the journey towards self-knowledge, towards learning to, to know who we truly are before God. And, and that is so important. But it's not important because it's the ultimate goal of our entire lives. If anything, once we finally know ourselves, we are still nearer the beginning of our journey. It's only in self knowledge that we are finally healthy enough to really begin growing, to start changing for good reasons rather than bad reasons. Know yourself, and then you are really ready to love truly. So, parents, if you are growing closer to God, you will learn about yourself. And you will begin to show more of God's grace to yourself. And that will free you up to love. And if you love your children as yourself, then you are doing well. If you then love your children so much that you would allow them to change you, you are doing very well. So where does this leave us? Well, maybe you hear all of this And it kind of makes you just feel a little tired. It sounds maybe like what I'm saying is that parenthood is yet another command to take up your cross. It will be hard, but just do it. It's the right thing to do. Endure the suffering and the fear. Just face it for the sake of love. And that's what I would be saying if it wasn't for the resurrection. So let's look back at Revelation chapter 12 to the rest of this story. So let's read together. This is from uh, Revelation 12 beginning in verse 10. This is kind of the rest of the story. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them. And then, if you skip down to verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman, it opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. It's because of the resurrection that we can know for sure that love is no risk at all. The dragon has no power. He is lying to you. He is trying to drown you in deception, making you think that love is a threat to you. But love will always be redeemed, it will always last, it is always worth it, it is always secure, it is always excess, it is icing on the cake of the great love God gave to us in Christ. So go ahead and love. Love as deeply as you can. It is all addition in the end. It is, there is no subtraction. It is no sacrifice to love. You might sacrifice other things for love, but It turns out that those things were nothing. They were vapor. They pass away. Love is the real deal. By the power of the resurrection, that is not just a promise that things will one day turn out well. It is a promise for now. The woman is not just comforted. She is not merely rescued or hidden from the dragon. She doesn't just cope with fear. Fear is destroyed. It has no place in God's kingdom. The whole earth rises up in her defense. That's why you should think twice about talking back to your mom, because she has the whole kingdom of God on her side. All of redeemed creation, the ground and the air and the birds and the animals, will fight for her. Love someone truly, and heaven and earth will have your back. So I want to ask the worship team to come up as, as we move into some invitations. And just a new time to to pray and receive from the Lord. Some of you have been holding yourself back from love. Not because you are selfish, but because you are counting the cost. You see clearly what love could do to you, to your very self, to your identity, and you don't know if you're ready for that. And I think the Lord is very gentle with us. And so I think the main invitation that I I want you to take before the Lord is this. Seamus, if you go to that slide. How would you love now if you believed that there was no cost to love? How would you act differently? What would you do differently if you believed that everything you do for love will last even after everything else passes away? So we're going to move now into a time of prayer. You can kind of just remain seated, but I want to invite you to close your eyes as we start to pray and encounter the Lord. And If you're comfortable with it, take your hands and maybe just hold them in your lap, kind of palms up, ready to receive. This is just between you and God. And as you feel ready, say to your Heavenly Father, silently or out loud, I want to love like you love. Heavenly Father, I want to love like you love. I want to love like you love. And now I want you to let this, this one, this one who is your father and your mother and your grandma and your auntie, the one who gives everything for you, I want you to hear this one speak back to you. Where does God's love that he wants to pour out on you now, where does God's love meet resistance in you? Where love has never been given to you, say to God, I want to love like you love. Where you feel broken or defective, unable to give or receive love, say to God, I want to love like you love. Where you wonder whether anyone will ever want what you have to offer, say to God, I want to love like you love. where you have loved and it hurts, where you feel like you are still waiting for the resurrection, where you have loved and wondered whether you ever want to love again, say to God, I want to love like you love. Where you are holding yourself back from love, where you feel like you are not ready to love, that you are not whole enough to love, say to God, I want to love like you love. Where you have chosen risk without love, where you have chosen riskiness to prove something to yourself, where you can no longer tell the difference between pain and love, say to God, I want to love like you love. Where you love and you want to love more, but aren't ready to change, say to God, I want to love like you love.